Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord, in worship and praise. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for sending your Son, Lord, for sacrificing him. Lord, while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, that we might live. We just thank you for that, Father. We pray that uh, we just submit this service to you this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon us as we open your word that you would just open our eyes to the truth, Father, and that it would dwell in our hearts. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> this morning we'll be continuing in our series in Romans, uh, starting in chapter 2. If you recall from chapter 1, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. The church is well established and flourishing, and Paul is eager to visit the church to preach the gospel and to encourage the body. He exhorts them to live by faith and to preach the gospel with boldness and truth. In the second half of the chapter, Paul shifts his focus to the wrath of God on sinful men. All men are by nature sinful and subject to God's wrath. His attributes are seen all around us in his creation, and man is therefore without excuse. God's wrath is not only executed as an eternal punishment, but also as turning men over to their sin, a hardened heart. He ends the chapter by describing sinful men who have been given over to their sin in a corrupt mind. They not only willingly sin, but they also applaud others who do as well. Let's keep in mind this morning that there is a distinction here between the unrepentant sinner living in enmity towards God's law and the repentant sinner struggling to live in a fallen world. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The distinction here is that if you are actively fighting your flesh, or if you've been given over to your sin. This morning's text takes us a step further in understanding God's righteous judgment on sin and the believer's place pertaining to judgment. This morning's text is Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But as we stand this morning to read the text, I'm going to back up to chapter 1, verse 28. I think that will be helpful for us to have a refresher where we left off before we get into chapter 2. So with that introduction, would you please stand with me if you are able out of reverence for God's word. Romans 1 verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, Every one of you who, do, who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. 
Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the end of chapter 1, Paul is describing the unrepentant sinner, a man who has been living in sin and God has given him over to a corrupt mind. He no longer feels guilt over his sin. He does not acknowledge God. His mind is corrupted. His judgment is clouded. There is no distinction between right and wrong. And in fact, he not only practices the things that are detestable to God, he encourages others to do the same. Chapter 2 begins with, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. So I've learned from previous studies, whenever you hear the word therefore, it's helpful to step back and reread to get a good understanding of the subject you're focusing on, which is why I thought it was worthwhile to start back in verse 28. So the broader context of chapter 1 is focusing on sin and man embracing his sin and denying the Creator. Towards the end of chapter 1, we narrow down to a list of specific sins and not just easy-to-avoid sins, such as murder, sins that we are all guilty of if we are honest with ourselves, sins like gossip, boasting, pride, being unloving or unmerciful. Paul says in chapter 1 that those who practice such things deserve to die. The point he is trying to make here is that we are all guilty before a holy God. None of us can claim to be without sin. All of us deserve God's wrath, but in his great mercy, he has shown us his love by sending his Son to atone for our sins. And this is where we shift in chapter 2 to judgment. Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. Man is without excuse before a holy God because of his sin, because God's glory is displayed all around him in creation. God is holy and perfect, and we are not. When you pass judgment on another for sinning, you are taking the position of one who is holy and perfect and are therefore without excuse for your own sin. Although this seems simple enough, this is a difficult and very important concept for the born-again Christian to understand and practice. As Christians, we represent the body of Christ to the world around us. There should be a clear distinction between how we live and how the rest of the world lives. It should be evident to those around us that we are different from the rest of the world 
that we are not slaves to our sin and our flesh. But this does not give us free reign to judge those around us. We are in no position to pass judgment on our neighbors as we too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is a difference between proclaiming the gospel, calling a sinful man to repentance, and passing judgment. Let me give you a couple examples I'm sure we can all relate to. You see a heavily intoxicated man making a fool out of himself in public, and you whisper to your friend or spouse about them, maybe making a joke or a snarky comment, thinking to yourself, at least I'm not that bad. Or you see another celebrity or politician caught up in a scandal. In your mind, comparing yourself to them and then concluding that you are in some way better. This is a form of passing judgment. In your mind, you're judging their actions and overlooking the sin in your own life. If we were truly acting as the body of Christ, rather than mentally comparing ourselves to the sinner around us, we would reach out to them and share the gospel. We would be grieved to see a man given over to sin without remorse. This should be our attitude, church. Judgment is not just an action of actively confronting someone and calling out their sin. Coupled with the gospel, this is actually love. Judging someone is comparing yourself to them is to somehow, by comparison, make yourself look better, concluding that they are going to hell, yet you are not, and you are doing nothing about it. God has shown us kindness, patience, and restraint despite our own sin and imperfection. We as believers are expected to show no less to our neighbors. Verse 4 says that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. He has shown us great patience and kindness, has he not? We were all once caught up in the snares of sin, but God in his great mercy delivered us from our sins. We should have that same attitude with one another. This does not mean, however, that we should overlook sin in the body of Christ for the sake of being non-judgmental. There is a distinction. In a moment, I will ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There, Paul describes in detail how the church is to handle sin within the body. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul is specifically talking about judgment of the non-believer, of the unrepentant sinner, those outside of the church. The man that is living in sin and God has given over to a corrupt mind or a hardened heart. God will judge such men. All we as Christians can do is to share the gospel and pray for them. But what about those within the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ? What do we do when we see sin within the body? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remorse from your congregation for the one who did this? Even though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who is doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, 
hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. I do not mean the immoral people of this world, or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges the outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. In Romans chapter 2, Paul admonishes the church not to judge, lest you condemn yourself. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's instructing the church to judge those within the body. Is this an oversight, an inconsistency in the word of God? Absolutely not. There is a clear distinction. If you recall in Romans 1, Paul is talking about the unrepentant sinner, the man with a hardened heart who not only continues to sin but applauds those who do so. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking specifically about those within the body. For those outside the body, we as the church are instructed to proclaim the gospel and to speak truth, to show Christ's love and not to pass judgment. Those within the body, though, are held to a higher standard. We are called to be salt and light in this world, to be different than the rest of the world, to be set apart for the gospel. How can we as the church be different than the world if we continue to do the sinful things that the rest of the world does? I ask you, is it loving to watch one of your brothers struggle with sin on the path to destruction and do nothing? If you see a toddler wandering in the street, would you not grab them and direct them back to their parents and to safety? Part of being in the body of Christ is holding one another accountable and being accountable to one another. It's not a bad thing. It's an act of love, an act of kindness and compassion. We all need the body of Christ to be accountable too. God has designed the church in this way. Aside from that, we also need to be mindful of the health of the church as a whole. Verse 6 says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. As most of you already know, Leaven is used in making of bread to cause the bread to rise as it cooks, typically yeast. If even a very small amount of leaven gets into the dough, it spreads and will affect all of the dough. It does not affect just certain parts. Likewise, when sin is allowed to continue unchecked within the body of Christ, it will affect the entire body, not just the individual sinner. The use of leaven as an analogy was especially helpful for Paul because historically the use of leaven was forbidden in all offerings made to the Lord. 
it was seen <clears throat> as something that was corrupting and detestable to God. So this would have been something that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with. We should have the same view of sin within the church. It should be detestable. We should not grow dull to sin within the body and become indifferent. In Matthew 18, verse 10, we see clear instruction on how to deal with the sin within the body. And in a moment, I'll turn there. In order for us to be an effective church, we need to be actively removing sin from the body when it is recognized. It is not an easy task. It takes diligence and persistence. It takes love, compassion, and honesty. It takes maturity. So what does it look like to hold a brother in Christ accountable to sin? How are we as believers supposed to handle a situation if our brother is caught up in sin or has sinned against us? Let's read from Matthew 18, verses 10 through 20. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain to go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, there, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verses 15 through 20 gives the church a very clear step-by-step -step process in confronting sin within the body but I find it helpful to back up to verse 10 when referencing this section of Scripture, as I believe these two are intended to go hand in hand. Before Jesus gives instruction on confronting sin with a brother, he first points out how important each one of us is to him and the Father, even when we have sinned and gone off course. In this parable, the shepherd will go out of his way to find the one out of a hundred that went astray will not simply cut his losses and move on. The one that strayed is just as important to him as the 99 who are still in the fold, and he will rejoice when he has found the lost sheep. This is the Father's love for us. He wants us to be in the fold. He grieves over us when we are lost, and he will rejoice when we come back to the fold. Likewise, this is the attitude we as believers should have for one another. If we find a brother in sin that needs to be confronted, 
we must first step back and make sure we have this same attitude, this same desire for them to return to the fold, that we are confronting them purely out of love and compassion. And then, once our heart is in the right place, we can move on to the steps laid out in verses 15 through 20. I think it's helpful to point out here that there is a rhyme or a reason to the way Jesus commands us to deal with sin within the body. And it's important to take these steps in the right order. The first step is to try to confront the brother one-on-one. This means that you haven't talked to four other people about it to get their opinions. This means that you haven't went directly to the church elders to report your grievance. This is going directly to your brother one-on-one and confronting the sin in love. I think it's easy to circumvent this first step, even if by accident. Sometimes, how to handle sin within the church is a little more clear when the sin is more transparent and obvious, such as sexual sins or drug or alcohol addiction. The problem is more glaring and hard to deny. There are obvious, immediate consequences to their actions. It's a little easier to confront a brother who is clearly struggling But what often happens within the body are situations that aren't quite as cut and dry. When the sin is not as blatant, there tends to be some confusion on how to handle it. Typically, instead of handling things the correct Matthew 18 way, it ends up something like this. Say, for instance, a brother in the body has wronged you in some way. You're mildly upset, but you just bottle it up and move on. This happens another time or two. And rather than confront the individual, you just mention it in conversation to a third party, asking them their opinion. This third party mentions it to seven other people over the course of the next few weeks. And about six months later, this brother hears about it from three different people, but by now has completely forgotten the original issue. He then accuses you of gossiping. All of this going on within the church. Now multiply this times 20, as this process can happen again and again between different people over the years. Can we see the problem here? What ends up happening is tension builds up between the members of the body and the church becomes a rumor mill. When a simple one-on-one 20-minute conversation may have solved everything from the beginning. 95% of the time, this is all that it takes. So what about the 5% of the time when that doesn't work? What if you confront your brother and he denies the accusation? What if you have an instance of more obvious sin and your brother will not repent? Why is step two to bring one or two others? There are a few good reasons. For one, you now have a third-party perspective. Maybe you are incorrect. Maybe you are not seeing things clearly. Second, perhaps your brother will listen if they see it is not only you who recognizes their sin, but others as well. Now you have a witness or two that has seen you confront the individual biblically, and they are still unrepentant. It is at this point, and only at this point, after you have tried steps one and two, that you bring the issue before the elders of the church. You've exhausted all your other options, and it's come down to this. You're seeking the wisdom of the elders of the church in the matter. 
Hopefully at this point, your brother will listen to the church. But if he doesn't, Jesus instructs the church to remove them from the body. Although this seems harsh, there are two reasons why. The first is for the benefit of the individual. If they are living in sin and not being held accountable, then they are on the path to destruction. The church would be doing the individual a disservice to do nothing. The church would be supporting them in their sin. The second is for the health of the body. If you recall, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We cannot let sin creep into the church. It needs to be squashed out immediately when it is spotted. Throughout this whole process, there's also two key obligations you as the offended or accusing party have. The first, you are obligated to forgive your brother if he repents. If we can't forgive our brother, how can we expect a holy God to forgive us? And this also means if they repent and you forgive, you need to let it go. You can't continue to bring it up. The second, we may be wrong. This whole process is assuming that you are seeing things clearly. Maybe you are mistaken. Maybe when you bring one or two others, they disagree with you. Maybe they agreed, but when you bring it to the church, the elders disagree. Through this whole process, we are to be humble and submissive to the authority of the church. All of this is how a healthy church confronts sin. We are not judging those outside of the body, but holding each other within the body accountable for our own health and for the health of the church acting out of love and compassion to refine and sharpen one another, holding each other to the standards set forth to us in Scripture here. Now, I know I've rabbit-trailed a bit here, and we've covered a lot of ground, and perhaps I've overwhelmed a few of you. But all of what we have covered so far this morning can be summed up with one simple statement. Christ will be the judge. This should be a comfort to the believer, and terrifying to the sinner. This should be the motivating factor, and it should set the tone in how we confront sin. The truth of the statement has two very different meanings for two very different people. Let's jump back to this morning's text, verses 6 through 11. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. The Lord will repay each one of us according to his works. For those outside the fold, this is a somber message. Wrath, anger, and judgment await. But to the one who has repented of their sin, to the born-again believer, 
eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. Hope, sanctification, justification. This is the meaning of the statement, Christ will be the judge. He has made it clear in his word how, we will, how he will rule on judgment day. We know the verdict. We know the outcome. And this is precisely the purpose of this morning's text. We know his righteous decree. We know the penalty of sin. When we see someone who does not know him and has not heard the truth, it grieves us. We have no business judging them. We all have been there. The judgment that awaits from the Lord is much more terrifying than any judgment we could pass. But we know his mercy and his forgiveness. And this is what we are called to show others. This is the desire of our hearts as a church, is it not? To see sinners repent and to be shown the mercy and forgiveness that we have received. To share the gospel unashamedly. To see the bride of Christ, the church, grow and flourish and be sanctified. To see God glorified. We have the opportunity to celebrate and share in God's mercy and forgiveness through the sacrament of communion this morning. Although we all were once sinners and deserving of God's judgment and wrath, in his great mercy and compassion, he sent his son to pay the price for our sins to take that punishment that we deserved, that we might spend an eternity in glory with him. Here at Providence, if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, then the communion table is open to you. In a moment, the worship team will begin to play, and I will ask that those in the back would come forward, and receive the elements, find your way back to your seat. We'll all work our way forward till we've all received, and we will partake together transition in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just gave you thanks, Lord, this morning that we have been shown grace and mercy, Lord. The judgment that once rested on us for our sin was atoned for through the blood of your Son. We just thank you, Father, that you've shown us mercy, that you made that sacrifice, Lord. We just thank you that we can fellowship together, Lord, and rejoice. For, the, for your glory, Father, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.